You've just entered the Disaster Tough podcast, the place for emergency managers, first responders, and humanitarians who want to get the job done. Stories, lessons, and tips are provided by field experts. I'm your host, John Scardina, owner of Doberman Emergency Management and former federal emergency response official who's responded to some of the most extreme disasters. Disaster Tough is our mantra. It combines experience, training, and analytics in order to be successful at any stage within the disaster life cycle. It means being a professional in emergency and disaster services. Doberman Emergency Management lives by this. If your organization needs to fill a gap, please contact us. We can help. Contact info is in the show notes. We also support other products and organizations that will increase your ability. For example, if you fight wildfires, hurricanes, a pandemic, any disaster in the field, at a hospital or command center, listen up. You're missing out if you do not use L3 Harris for your radio comms. They are secure, portable, mobile, and scalable, which is great news for us in the field. A truly disaster-tough radio system. Check out the XL family of radios by clicking on the show notes or simply go to L3Harris.com. When you think of situational awareness, you need to think of Futurity IT. They are disaster tough because they saw a gap and figure out how to close it by creating the Orion and Athena applications. Situational awareness is all about speed, coordination, and accuracy of information. Futurity IT's Orion app collects and provides preliminary damage assessments and integrates all incident action plan documents with WebEOC. The Athena app allows for planning, contact tracing, and customizable group coordination in every single phase of the disaster lifecycle. The best part? Futurity IT made both applications extremely intuitive. It's so easy to use. Click on the show notes today to schedule a free demo. Welcome back to the show, everybody. It's your host, John Scardina. Man, this is a big time moment for our show. We have Craig Fugate on here. Everybody should know who he is. He led FEMA for several years. He's worked with all different kinds of political parties at the local, state, and federal level, which is really huge right now if you really think about that. He's had like really big moments where he's been able to impact the direction of the field. So it's really a big deal for us to have him on here. Craig, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. All right. So let's just jump in real quick. Um, several years ago, I was at Georgetown and uh, you came and did a Q&A with us. And um, you said something that really took the direction of my career of like what I wanted to focus on. And so I just kind of want to start off with that and say like, um, <clears throat> or rather ask, you had this moment where you talked about so what? and priorities within emergency management. And it, it, like I said, it really impacted me. And so I kind of want to use that as the theme for today's show of like, what's the priority? What, why are we talking about this? What's what's the need for emergency management of all these different topics we're going to go through? And so can you just talk to us about where you came up with So What and how you use that in FEMA? I didn't come up with it. Something I heard, uh, uh, I was listening to some intelligence officials at a conference where they were briefing on uh, you know, all this information coming in and how do you know what's noise and how do you know what's that's useful? And one of the guys just very pragmatically says, I use the so what test. If what the information is telling me doesn't change what I'm doing, then it's, it's not important. If it's something that now is actionable and it will change what I'm doing, it passes my so what test. And the so what wasn't so much to be like shorthand for insulting, like so what, you know, you know, it was, so what will I do differently? 
with this information. And I kind of use that in EOCs and other places where you see all of this data collection. And it seems we spend a lot of time doing what I call process of, we have to do assessments, we have to get all this information. And my question is, so what? What information will actually cause you to change what you're doing? Because those are the key points of when you recognize what you're doing or that the response is not what you want it to be. And you need to do something different. And so I always look at, you know, when people are saying, you know, they put the maps up on the screens, they do all of the, you know, what I call the EOC theater. Uh, I always love the satellites up on the big screens during hurricanes. And I, I ask us, so, so how many people in this room are satellite interpreters? Mm. Uh, you know, it's theater. And I, I get all that. But I always come back to, so what will I do differently? And if I'm not going to do anything differently, then that information uh, it, it goes into SIDRAP. But it's not what I need. What I need to know is what do I need to be doing differently? If I don't need to be doing anything differently, that's also a good data point. But I always look yeah. for the soul. That's a good point. So I was working in planning and operations in DC and different federal agencies. And um, I started to apply data and the, and the use of data for decision making out there. And um, I was recruited to FEMA for the, the national IMAT. And I was, I was really blown away by I want to say the lack of, well, maybe that's that's the right word. The, the lack of understanding of like what data, the the purpose of data. It's not for the nice to knows. Like we we get requests all the time from people like that. That won't make you change your decision or make you validate a decision. You're not going to go to Congress with to say like, yeah, we did the right thing because we collected this information. At the same time, there on our end, we would we would have to we would have all these priorities of data collection. It's just like that's just a huge waste of time. And so, like my big pitch to people is, data should be used to 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 make a decision or to validate a, a decision. And um, maybe that became came from talking to you, or maybe just because like the the way my brain processes information, that's why. Like that's the so what. Like you, you yeah. want to be able to do decision making. So really good call out there. Um, and so like for all of our listeners, like. Yeah, like priority is like number one. Like, what is your priority? And so, like, I have to ask because you brought up kind of damage assessments a little bit. Do you think the way that we do damage assessment, collect, like, especially the preliminary damage assessments for to get like a presidential, presidentially declared disaster, do you think that process is outdated or do you think we should shift that at all? It's useless. <laughs> um, okay. I mean, I remember early at FEMA, um, we had a flood in, in uh, Georgia. Uh, the Atlanta metro area north and they were out there going to send teams out and do assessments. They said, well, we can't go out because it's still underwater. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the Atlanta constitution journal and there's like pictures of mobile home parks that have water up over, up to the roofs. Yeah. I'm like, okay, those are all destroyed. And just based upon the imagery that I saw from photojournalists, I'm like, yeah, this is declarable. It's, I don't, I don't see, and it was this disconnect between, well, we have to have a hard count. And I'm like, I, I have a hard count. I just looked at it. Yep. Give me the recommendation. The state already put in the request, but the region was still doing assessments. And I'm like, it's there. Mm. Let's go. Um, and I think this is, you know, it, it isn't that people at FEMA or people in this business are inherently just not competent. It's sometimes what's the motivator. 
and the motivator of FEMA was fear of making a mistake. Yes. Uh, there had been so much pushback after Katrina about potentially declaring things until you had numbers. And it was this absolute thing where we had to physically go out and count them uh, because we don't want to be wrong. And the fear of being wrong, I think, drove data collection to the point of absurdity. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, guys, emergency management is like horseshoes, hand grenades, and thermal nuclear devices. You just got to be close. Precision <laughs> isn't really uh, all it's cracked up to be. And the more time we collect information, the less we're changing the outcome. And that's what I kept trying to drive to people was, look, that number doesn't mean anything unless we move towards doing something. If we're still collecting information to know if we need to do something, uh, we're losing time. And the reason I, I always emphasize this, time to me is the most precious commodity in a disaster. You never get it back. Yes. And unfortunately, we ask people in government who on a day-to-day basis are giving extraordinary amount of time to make decisions. Uh, and, I, I, you know, the joke in D.C. is there's no decision that cannot be improved by another meeting. And you take that environment and you flip it over and says, okay, now deal with a disaster where you're not going to have good information. You're not going to have it fast enough. And the longer you wait for good information to make better decisions, the worse the outcome gets because you're slow. So the maxim I always had was, uh, if you think it's bad, respond like it's bad and adjust downward. Don't adjust up. Mm. And I, I do, you know, I, I basically you know, use, use shorthand. I said, it's basically beer and pizza math. How many people live in the area of impact? That's my number. Yep. Uh, is that something that's likely to overwhelm the state? Yes. Then let's start moving. Well, we don't know it's that bad. By the time you know it's that bad, it's too late. If it's not bad, we can always shut it down. Yes. Uh, but I don't get time back. Well, this this was a for FEMA. This was a a, a, a difficult situation because they were in so much scrutiny from inspector generals, DHS oversight, congressional committees, critics about you know making mistakes, and their fear was, uh, well, what happens if we send all this stuff, we spend all this money, and it's not needed? We're going to get fraud, waste, and abuse. And I'm like, okay. I said, let me explain something to you. Uh, in the history of emergency management, anytime there's a big disaster, there's going to be hearings. Now, what hearing do you want to testify at? You sent too much stuff too quickly, or you didn't send enough stuff, and you didn't respond fast enough, and people suffered or died? Yeah. To meet with a binary choice, they're going to do hearings anyway. I'd much rather be in the position of, let's go now. And what was key to this was I had executive backing on this. Uh, when I was in the state of Florida, this was Governor Bush backing me, and this was his expectation. And with President Obama, that was his expectation, that uh, you know, by the time we got to the second term, you know, staff would be going up to briefing about disasters, and there'd be other crises going on. And the president usually would just say, look, I'm pretty sure if you guys got that, let's go to the next issue. Yeah, that's uh, cool. Again, it, it was this idea that, response shouldn't wait until we know it's really, really bad. Uh, we're just not fast enough. And, and that's why, again, on the national IMAT, I was, you know, you knew I was going to send you guys out the door if I even suspected yeah. this was going to be bad. Because uh, I wanted my horsepower in the field not sitting back waiting for, you know, our request. Yeah. So, first of all, you, you said like so many things that are like, uh, you're like saying everything I, I tell people. So hopefully they listen now. It's all about max extent and emergency management. Like you, you don't get time back, just like what you said. So like 
have you, it, the people who push back on that are those bureaucrats or those people who sit in an armchair for too long and have never talked with a survivor. You think the guy whose trailer just got, he just lost everything. Or you think that, that, that family who saved up 20 years to finally buy their house and their house is burned down. Do you think they care about your process? Like, no, like they, they want to feel overwhelmed by, by people helping them. Right. They want to see boots on the ground. Right. And then, like on the national IMAT, it would drive us nuts. We we joined that team because we wanted to be out the door. Like that's what people sometimes don't get. They're like, oh, you know, first respond. You know, emergency managers are not first responders. No, but we're emergency coordinators. And as part of the, the specifically part of FEMA, you have all these federal resources that you can tap into all over the country. It's just like, man, you want to be there. That's how we got in the field, right? So it's a huge call out there. My, my. Yeah, I, I had a uh, the best way to describe this, is, and and, and it, it's not it's kind of derogatory, but uh, one of the, one of the folks that worked with me was a great American, uh, was a former uh, colonel in the army, had served as defense coordinating officer in Florida, and I recruited him to FEMA, and he was running response with Damon Penn, mm. and Damon had a great way of classifying the operators from everybody else. He says you got your operators, and you have the clerks, and the clerks are a necessity. Uh, but sometimes they have a hard time getting out of the way when the operators need to do their jobs. Yeah, hundred percent. And you know, the, the, you have part of government is good that there's bureaucracy. It does, you know, prevent some stupid from happening. But I would say actually, actually, more often than not, it does get in the way, especially in emergency management, emergency response. Like yeah. emergency managers are not responders, no, but they're getting resources for the urban search and rescue people. They're getting resources for the state. They're actually showing up and saying, hey, we're here to help, which now, is a huge stress relief for people too. Right? I, I think this whole this whole terminology of responders uh, is kind of noise anyway, because mm. you know, I, I remind people, the first responders are not the people with lights and sirens. It's neighbors digging neighbors out after a tornado. Yeah, uh, It's the mm. person applying direct pressure to somebody that's bleeding to death in an active shooter. Um, and, you know, to try to say that emergency management, uh, you know, is separate from that process is what, if your response is working and fits the model, that's an emergency. Mm. The dial 911 people show up, you know, all of these things that these people say, well, emergency managers aren't responders. It's like, well, as long as the response system's working, you're right. We're in the background, but when yeah. your system fails, it isn't able to keep up. The org chart isn't going to work. That's when you need emergency management. And if we're not prepared to launch and engage immediately, then we're going to fail the mission. Yeah. So again, I think we spend too much time breaking ourselves up into the tribes mm. and go, look, as long as the org chart of the system works, because if you think about it, we build to respond to reoccurring routine uh, crisis and build those systems that are fairly robust. And, and in most of those cases, emergency management is really the background. At best, we may be doing some, uh, you know, JIC operations, Joint Information Center. We may be doing some sit reps. We may be, you know, relaying information and doing some data collection. But by and large, the system's designed for that. Yes. But when it exceeds that, you you have to have a team that's already engaged, already is up to speed, and is ready to go, and is anticipating versus waiting for, okay, the system's failed. Now we got to kick in. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's sometimes not a bright line. And, you know, sometimes it's obvious. You're already there. Uh, you know, the hurricane just hit. Or 
that ice storm wasn't as bad, but damn, the temperatures are getting a little oh, crap. We just had power outages, and yeah. now people are dying. Yes. As soon as people are impacted and other people are there to help them, they're responders. I, I like that a lot. Um, it's kind of like how I say a lot on the show, like, it's just noise by saying emergency management. Like, you're, like we're not managing it. We're coordinating it, right? And so there's like, there's all these different... We, we have all this culture of language, but that culture of language sometimes is just a bunch of noise and we just need to get out there and help people. If you're helping people, you're doing the job. I want to go back real quick and talk about... <clears throat> how you were able to work with both political parties and get buy-in by both political parties uh, and the executives. Can you just walk through, so especially for those guys who are listening right now, guys or girls who are listening out in the field and they're either in a different political party, which I don't really care about, or more importantly, they're trying to get buy-in from their executive, state, federal, whatever. What would you say to them? What would you be your advice? Yeah, this is not an easy... Uh, thing to do. And I've told people, uh, again, during transitions, when uh, you know, a new governor comes in, new president comes in, the party changes, and you have people that are in appointed positions, and they're asking, should I stay? Uh, should I go? And I, I, this is a conversation I've had with several state directors. And, and my advice is this, do you have or can you build a relationship with the chief executive? Because if you're not your, their go-to person, you might as well get out of the way. And this is something that uh, it's hard uh, to accomplish, but you've got to be seen as the credible person to go to when everything else fails. Mm. And they need to have the comfort to know that doesn't matter about party affiliations. What matters is competency and ability to execute and uh, run that response under their authorities. And some governors and, and some mayors are much more hands-on. Uh, you know, they're going to do all the press conferences. They're, they're going to talk to the media. They're going to go out in the field. Uh, you may be in the background. But what's important is that if you're in that background, you're the person they're calling and saying, hey, I got a problem. I'm seeing this. What are we going to do? How do we fix this? Um, and for some people, it's it's – They've had the connections. They've made the relationships. Others, they had to earn it. Mm. And in the Obama administration, I was not uh, any part of any campaign team. First time I met the president was, you know, two weeks into the job when he came to FEMA for the hurricane season. Briefly. Whoa, I didn't know that. So I had to earn. And, and FEMA, again, was a very mm. uh, questionable entity. <clears throat> they had seen what had happened uh, even in the post-Katrina Reform Act. Uh, there was still not a lot of trust to FEMA. And so there's a lot of questions. Could FEMA actually uh, do what it's supposed to do? And I told my team, I said, look, the only way we're going to get credibility is stop issuing press releases, telling everybody how great we are and execute the mission and let other people tell the story. Yeah. But we need to be there with the answers. We need to be there with the solutions. If somebody brings up a problem, we need to be prepared to solve it. And we can't say that's not our job. Interesting. Yeah. So. The way I got buy-in at National Cancer Institute is I found out the director is bringing his kids to uh, like an Earth Day event, and so I I made like a it's called I call it an augmented reality sandbox, but really what it is it's a projector over a sandbox. So when you move the sand, the color on the sand changes, and so it looks like a 3D map. And uh, his kids stayed there for two hours, and every single one of my projects got approved after that. 
and he thought we were just a kind of a joke. And so like, I do kind of say like, there's a selling component, part of your, part of your job, right? Like you have to get them on board. And luckily I found out kind of a clever way to do that there. But other times it is kind of brutal with, they're, they're just like, they only see you as like the doomsday prepper. And when you're like, Hey, you have a dam that doesn't have an evacuation plan at the base. They're like, that's fine. You're like, no, it's, it's not fine actually. And so like, yeah. it's how you have this conflict sometime between resources yeah. and yes. Yeah, well, again, I, I think I had some, uh, unusual situations in that, uh, when I was yeah, at the state, cause at the county level, uh, I really had, I was really just not going anywhere until after Hurricane Andrew hit. Mm. And the county manager called me and he'd gone down to a county manager's meeting. They had kind of did a uh, quick hot wash of what happened during Andrew and he came back and he said, what do we need to do? And I said, well, uh, I'm not going to ask for any money. Mm which I think he was kind of expecting, you know, what was my budget request? I said, but what I want is you to direct all of the department heads to take on responsibilities as part of the county plan. Um, this was early on when the emergency support, support functions were being introduced in the federal response plan. And the state of Florida was going to replicate that. And I said, you know, I need to have the ability for the head, you know, our, our, our you know, county, public works director to take on transportation and public works. Um, you know, the fire chief needs to take ESF-4 uh, and search and rescue. Uh, the Department of Health needs to take, you know, ESF-8. And it's kind of going to be an awkward arrangement because I'm running this program, yet they're going to take leads for elements of that plan. Mm. And so he wrote the memo. But until there was Hurricane Andrew, um, you know, I was trying to build a program, but I think from the standpoint of local government, it was a checkbox. We did what we yeah. had to do to get funding from the state. When I got to um, the state after Andrew, uh, the late Governor Charles was still governor. Obviously, they were doing uh, a major revamp of the program. They had brought Joe Myers down from uh, North Carolina to reestablish or actually build an emergency management program. Uh, and then when Governor Bush came in, he probably what was interesting is his his emphasis on emergency management was the personal experiences of a young father going through Hurricane Andrew, mm. where he tells the story that uh, he didn't want to evacuate the Secret Services, you know, it's too dangerous. He finally went over to a friend's house, and he, he tells a story about how, you know, he is, he is covering uh, his wife and his three small children uh, with his body shielding them in a hallway as debris flying all over. Uh, and then President Obama, again, the political fallout of Katrina was such, it had become a campaign issue. And this was a real uh, concern that in the incoming administration, you had to have a good program because it was a political uh, liability if you didn't. Right. But it's also just good governance if you don't have a good program. Uh, you know, part of you know, Governor Bush, who's not a real big fan of big government, uh, but he says one of the essential roles of government is in the time of crisis. The reason we have government is to support and respond to the needs of the people during disaster. Yeah, absolutely. And so that's that just goes. I remember that um, it is all over the news all the time. That picture of President Bush flying over Katrina. And so I, I remember the Obama administration, President Obama, and it was just like I could only imagine at the time of like never have that picture. And so it's like, oh man, like intention aside like uh it's all politics for these guys i mean they are politicians right and so it's like 
my thought process is you were able to go in there and just like the, the way I think about it is when Craig Fugate, you know, yourself walked in there, there was a major shift in emergency management because one, it seemed like the president gave you the resources needed to be able to do the job. And two, it was like the first time really in like a, a large scale where it seemed like the politicians got out of the way and let the emergency managers run with it. Now that was the perception. I don't know what the reality was, but, um, like it was, it's been. If you look at from when you got essentially hired and, and so on, it's always been people with an emergency management background, and it will continue to be like that because it's like, oh hey, like we actually know how to do the job. People who've been, you know, proven. Um, admin, Administrator Chriswell. I don't know how far she's into the process, but I mean, look at her background. She's on the national IMAT, which is a huge win for me, by the way. But um, you know, like it's just calling it out. So I want to switch gears here for real quick with you, if you, if we can, and cover some of these questions that we got. I'm going to start off with maybe some of the more of the serious ones, um, but uh, there was actually some fun ones in there too. But um, if I can make like a quad chart of where all the questions fell, 90% of the questions were all about. It seems like emergency management is changing. And so I'm just going to call out some of these questions. Um, now, I, again, I just want to thank everybody who, who submitted questions all over social media, Facebook. We had a bunch of questions there. We had a bunch of questions on uh, Instagram. I had several friends reach out to me personally and send questions. LinkedIn. LinkedIn, you kind of sucked it up this time, but uh, maybe next time. But uh, yeah, we did get a lot of questions. So here's one that I... Um, it's kind of a dual, dual end question. This guy, Donald, uh, he submitted said... Uh, which jurisdictions and chapters within jurisdictions do you think have the best managed and developed volunteer programs? What lessons can you share that other less developed and managed programs could benefit from your thoughts on the subject? Well, some of the groups that emerged that did not start out as traditional uh, disaster responders have, I think, really strong organization. Uh, where they are able to take their resources to need very quickly. Um, you know, you think of people like Team Rubicon. You think of World Central Kitchen, uh, where these groups uh, basically emerged uh, because there were unmet needs, and they saw a way of addressing it uh, that was not the traditional uh, way and kind of butted head with some folks, but as they gained uh, traction, people started realizing, hey, it's working. Mm. Uh, just get out of the way. Uh, figure out how to collaborate, cooperate, and coexist. But uh, they may not be doing what traditional organizations have done, but they are executing a mission, and they they can get people on the ground quickly. Mm. Um, but they also, I think, can't do everything. And so that was something I, I found that uh, in talking with the volunteer organizations and in Florida, we learned a lot of lessons from Hurricane Andrew. And I think by the time we you know, were going through the Oklahoma hurricane, we had a very strong relationship because we looked at our volunteer organizations as part of the team and held them accountable. Mm. Um, and the thing I found is they would often, just because of the nature of, of, of fundraising stuff, find themselves almost as competitors. Mm. And trying to be all things, all people, uh, in a disaster. And I'm like, guys, you're, you're not good at everything. Why don't we focus on what you're really good at and let other parts of the team? And, and there was a situation in Hurricane Wilma that just kind of exemplifies how this worked out. Uh, Mike Whitehead, who 
is now with the Red Cross, but at that time was with the Florida Department of Ag and Consumer Services, was coordinating under our mass peer feeding operation. Mm-hmm. And they were turning out about 100,000 hot meals a day with no contract. You had all these, all these big cook trucks, the Red Cross, Salvation Army, the Southern Baptist, Methodist Men. And rather than doing this all independently, they grouped them together. They were pulling USDA commodity items out of the mm-hmm. warehouses to get down there. These teams were cooking them, coordinated. So all these cook trucks were basically you know, hub and spoke situations where the, they were the hub. They would use uh, Red Cross emergency vehicles to haul food out to distribution sites. And where there wasn't a place like a community center and stuff, they had the Salvation Army uh, canteens, which could provide a, a more permanent, longer-term presence. Mm. And so you had all these different groups who historically weren't always working as a team. Feeding 100,000 meals a day. Yeah, that's insane. Just through the coordination of working together. Individually, they could have never done that or added up to that number. So Mm. I think part of this is getting organizations to recognize that uh, you don't need silos because if it's a big enough disaster, there's more work than we all have capability doing. And by teaming and working, we all become more successful. I think that was the thing that was hard for people to understand was, look, if you team, you actually get better press and better exposure <laughs> and you're probably going to see more donations. I know. Isn't that hilarious? Individually, you're failing. Yeah. That's what we do at Doberman. Like uh, Doberman Emergency Management is a, obviously a private group, but we partner with so many other private, other emergency management groups that have different aspects of what they focus on. You know, we really focus on like, we don't say, but we don't do butts and seats essentially like at all. Like if somebody needs a gap, like we'll bring it in and we'll work on it, especially with the data side. But like we don't do software, and so we team up with you know Futurity IT, or we don't we don't do bus and seats, so we team up with a couple different organizations that do that. And so like we're able to be a force multiplier just by working better together. And I think it's a better business model. You know, you talked about um, going back from your previous experience where you did that Q and A with us years ago um, about that coordination, and it made me think of Hurricane Katrina. You had I think it, the problem at the time when we were looking at it was. Salvation Army showed no, no, it was uh, Southern Baptist showed up, the Red Cross showed up, and I think it was like the uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints showed up, and the one showed up with a ton of food, one showed up with a ton of volunteers, one showed up to cook, but they couldn't work together, and they 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 basically sent like sent all this supply away, and uh, like to your to your point, now when you go out to big scale disasters. The LDS Church, they bring in all the food. The Southern Baptists cook the food. Salvation Army or um, or the Red Cross delivers the food. And it's yeah. like, who knew that you could do so much better? Like if you just, you know, hub and spoke. Yeah. So, man, like yeah, ample I was always a there. big fan um, of the, uh, the volunteer organization acting disasters umbrella. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a very strong state BOAD. Um, we added groups over time that had worked outside of that and found that working in, in that system was actually more beneficial. Mm. Uh, when I got to the, uh, the federal level FEMA, that was one of the groups I, I, I would go to the meetings. Uh, you know, we would you know, periodically send a FEMA. You know, we had liaisons on that team, but I would periodically go to their meetings. And mm. uh, I knew a lot of these people from responses in Florida, but we were bringing in new groups and diversifying that. Yeah. Um, 
and showing the power of how the volunteer organizations working together could do so much more without losing their identity. They didn't have to give up their identity. Mm. They did not have to give up, um, you know, their, 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 how they raised their funds. It was working on what you do best and recognizing other people have other talents and, and, and putting it together so they less competition, more collaboration. Mm. But it was never about giving up your identity. Yeah. It was always, how do we collaborate as a team? The, the survivors don't care who helps them. I mean, that's, you know, I'm, I'm not sitting there going, oh, I'm sorry, uh, I, only, I only request Red Cross when I have my home play, you know. <laughs> uh, and again, all these groups are, are, are traditional legacy, which are like big, gigantic organizations that we can't yeah. really do without uh, as much as people complain about their bureaucracy. The reality is there's no other organization that can fill those roles. So, you know, the American Red Cross, uh, maybe not as nimble as some of the of smaller groups, but without them, we, we lose the backbone a lot of this. But working together and collaborating speeds up the response, helps more people, makes everybody look better. Yeah, absolutely. So we actually had a question specific to that. Let me see if I can find it real quick. Um, let's see. Yes, we got that one. Let's see. Okay, here we go. This is by Kevin. Kevin asks, how will the f future of emergency management shift? It seems like there is at a point in time where response in the federal centric is when it should shift back towards the local level. And I'm going to I'm going to amend that a little bit and say, do you think we should start to rely more and more heavily on those volunteer groups and we should push away from federal resources? Or do you think that the federal should kind of be the, the, the big dog in the room still? Well, it really just comes down to the economics. The federal government has the ability to print money. Uh, state and local governments don't. Mm. And as much as people want to shift this back to local, um, they also want more federal funding. Mm. So that's always going to be dynamics. And people have defined emergency management by the funding stream. Too, too many times I've heard people talk about uh, emergency management defined by what you can declare under the Stafford Act. Uh, and yet we ended up as major role players in pandemic with that was our plan at FEMA anyway, as we dealt with H1N1, Ebola, SARS, uh, and planning for future pandemics. But too many people, both inside and outside the profession, define themselves around the Stafford Act. Mm. So to me, the bigger the disaster, the more you need everybody at the local level doing everything they can and maximizing all of their capabilities, including the public and the private sector. That, that was part of the reason we said whole community at FEMA because people got tired of me you know, laying out all these groups, government, the NGOs, the private sector, and the public. And I've been displeased with some of my counterparts who have a tendency to basically scream and ask for everything when multiple states are in the case of the pandemic and not ask a more important question, how much can we do ourselves and how much can we do our help our neighbors before we start screaming we need everything? Mm. And that, I think, needs to be one of our tenets is we never hesitate to ask when we need it, but we always do everything we can to reduce what we need to ask for by building capabilities at the local level. And people say, well, we don't have a budget for that. I'm like, and you made a statement I need to kind of correct. We didn't get more resources. The, 
biggest budget I had was my first year. Every year at FEMA, our operating budget was cut. Whoa, Every I didn't know that. Year. That's huge. We went through sequestration. We were one of the few agencies not to have to do furlough. We ended up having huh. to cut travel, conferences. I mean, a lot of stuff that short-term weren't going to affect the mission, but longer-term had consequences. Yeah, that's and, interesting. But, you know, we built a program at FEMA. And again, everybody says, well, you know, you, you had this huge budget. So I'm like, you know, we went through the entire 2004, 2005 hurricane season with 132 permanent positions. No, 116 permanent positions at the Division of Emergency Management. Jeez. But our response wasn't based upon just us. It was all the state agencies and all of their staffs and all the volunteer agencies and all the counties. You know, we sent close to 6,000 responders to the state of Mississippi in mutual aid during Katrina. About 450 were National Guardsmen. Everybody else was state, local, volunteer, and the mm. private sector that was part of our team that we deployed over there. So, mm. you know, again, I, I always hear this, yeah, we need to be building more capability locally. And then I also hear, well, we need more funding. And I'm like, well, in my world, if you need more money, uh, you need to understand a term I learned a long time ago, and that's called OPM. And it ain't the Office of Personnel Management. It's other people's money. It's how do you leverage the team's capability? Because if you're that one person that wrote a plan that sits on the shelf and you, you've got a compliance program and you meet the paper requirements, but you don't have every key department head in your government, you don't have the chamber and big businesses on speed dial, you can't call up the volunteer agencies in the middle of the night. If the school board says, you know, we don't want to do shelters because it's inconvenient for our students, then you got a paper program. And more money isn't going to fix that. Mm. So buy-in. So I have a question then because it sounds like it's in conflict with um, like a previous statement. And so like, just walk me through this real quick. We go big, go big so that we would have the better problem of we were we were too resourceful versus what's what's the problem them saying I want everything because if I want everything we don't need everything then okay we we had we had too much and that's okay how where how do those two opposing viewpoints or maybe they're not of opposing viewpoints how do they how do they correlate together how do you, how do you work that out well Again, I, I, I looked at this from the standpoint of Florida. We used a lot of our Homeland Security grants to build more Type 2 urban search and rescue teams. So before we started asking for the FEMA Type 1 teams, we would have all of our teams deployed and out the door. Yeah. Uh, you know, we leveraged our National Guard. We convinced the legislature to actually provide annual funding mm. to the National Guard for them to train up uh, guardsmen to be uh, liaisons and do a lot of the disaster missions that we had uh, because that's not part of their Title 32 training dollars, but we we got the legislature to fund that. Um, we helped support counties building regional incident management teams. So in Florida, uh, we got to the point where between our contracting and everything else, uh, in most cases from the federal government, what we just needed was reimbursement. Mm. Um, and that was my goal was to get to the point where we built enough capability within the state um, that we didn't need to go to FEMA. And, and this starts out with something kind of innocuous. We don't do it anymore. I'm glad we're out of the business. But at the time, it was after Hurricane Andrew. ICE was a big deal. Mm. And 
you know, the minute a disaster would start, we would put in mission requests to uh, FEMA fries. I, I remember wondering. that. That was weird at the time. Yeah. I kept wondering about that. I was just, this, where does FEMA get? Do they have like a big ice maker? Turn out, no, they're buying it from a, a, a big site in Jacksonville that does all the big venues, the, uh, mm. the Gator Bowl and the Jags and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, what's the markup on that? Because we pay 25% of it. Mm. Uh, what's the markup on that? Turned out it was cheaper for us to go contract because FEMA would give a, a mission assignment to the Corps of Engineers who then go contract and get the ice in my own state. And I'm thinking, well, why don't we just contract with it? And people yeah. say, well, why would we do that? Let FEMA do it. Uh, and they'll spend the money and then we'll reimburse them later. I'm like, that is still going to cost me more money. It's not going to be as fast. Yeah. And if I can develop more capabilities within my jurisdiction, then it lowers the threshold that I have to go to the federal government when I need to go big. But if I need to go big and I need things from the federal government, and this goes back to, we didn't go big on every single disaster. Mm. It was, if we saw a situation that it was possible that we were going to get these requests, we needed to start moving. And we needed to start moving against the scale of the event. And so, you know, as you know, FEMA does a lot of disasters that the actual disaster is after the event, after response, and it's really about recovery. Yes. What I was trying to get people to focus on was, that we had built and institutionalized that process so much that when you had the event like the tornadoes that hit in Alabama uh, in 2011, the anniversary just came up, mm-hmm. and you're getting fragmented reports of just tremendous damage, and the state's in the middle of assessing it, trying to trying to get what's going, and I'm talking, and I'm asking, what are we doing? We're waiting on assessment. I'm like, uh, let's go. We know it's going to be bad. The Joplin tornado. Yeah. We had no request from the state. I'm like, yeah, we're going to get them. Let's go. And they're going, well, what, what do you, what do you send? They don't have a request or anything. I'm like, guys, how many people live in Joplin, Missouri? About 80,000. We just had an F5 go through the middle of it. Yes. What kind of things would you normally need? Send it. Yeah. Well, we don't know if they're going to need it. I'm like, we don't get time back. So this idea of go big, go fast is, and this is a judgment call, but you've been in this business as long as I have, you get a sense of this, Sounds like they got it. Um, yeah, this is this makes sense. They got it. You know, we're going to be writing checks. That's it. Or I'm not sure they got it. Or there's a this thing is getting worse, and I'm hearing more stuff, and I'm not. It doesn't. It's not fitting the plan. Yeah, we need to, we need to step up the game. And for the federal government, you know, Katrina caused a lot of things. But one of the big changes was rewriting the the, the disaster declaration process that FEMA clearly had authority to deploy prior to a governor's request. It was, for many people, they had that authority prior to that, but it was clear Congress enunciated and said, you know, if there is evidence of or you suspect a disaster has occurred, you know, mm. the president has authorized FEMA to begin spending money. You know, deploying a national IMAC, which is not cheap. Right. If I'm going to fly you across the country. The law changed. I didn't have to wait for the governor to ask it. If I'm like, this is going to be bad and I need to start moving. Because if you think about it from the federal level, anything we do is 24 hours from really affecting an outcome. The, uh, the closer I am to the disaster, the shorter the timeline. But when I'm that far away, it really shifted the emphasis. And because I was not resource constrained, it pushed the federal. But at the state level, I would push with our internal resources 
But I also try to maximize state capability. My theory was if we had a hurricane hit the Gulf Coast and Mississippi, Alabama, Florida all got hit, Florida should be able to do most of the response for itself. That's right. To free up everybody else to the states that got hit harder. Florida is one of the best states, state EOCs I've ever seen. And I've been in a lot of them. And also I've been, to your credit and probably to your predecessor, um, I 99% of the disasters I was deployed to on the national I'm at, it happened before a deck happened. We would get in there for a hurricane. We would get in there three or four days before it hit. And we would start managing all these resources. And that's when it went best. If I got there after the hurricane hit, game over. We were going to get screwed. So, I mean, you're already going to get screwed from a hurricane. But Yeah, uh, here's the thing with hurricanes. We see them coming. And I got three or four days to make a decision to get you guys in. What's harder is when I have uh, wildfires, flash flooding, an earthquake, uh, tornado outbreak. Yeah. Yeah. and the tendency for the bureaucracy to go, well, we need assessments. And I'm like, yeah, it looks bad to me. Go. Well, we don't know if it's that bad. We don't know if we're going to need everybody. We're not. Uh, guys, you know, and, and this, I, I don't know if you ever heard this at FEMA, but I got, uh, after Hurricane Isaac, I just got really frustrated with the team. Because mm. Isaac was coming in as a cat one. That kind of produced a ho-hum response, both in the state of Louisiana and the region. And it was a slow-moving storm. It was a huge wind field and it produced more storm surge damage in the river parishes than Katrina did. Mm. And I'm up there and uh, um, I see this disconnect because I got one region dealing with Mississippi, I got one region dealing with Louisiana. Um, I'm not getting the sense they got the scale of this thing. And I'm on the ground. Yeah, uh, so I've been there and I'm, I'm, I'm seeing it. And there's a disconnect between what I'm seeing and what I hear us doing. And I finally just sent off a, 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 you know, I just kind of sent an email to my senior leadership team uh, with a course correction. It said, think big, go big, go fast, be smart about it. Which then prompted, we need to have a call, because what did you mean by that? And that's when I, I, I really put in this, this effort to think big. How many people live in the states that just got hit? How many parishes and counties are impacted? That's our response. That's the population. Yes. Get it going now. Think big. Quit trying to make anything fit. We're not Walmart. Just in time delivery is not our business. Having too much stuff is. No yeah. more meetings. Do it. I do Go love back. how you had a meeting. You had a meeting after you sent over the email, which is like exactly to your point. Like, go yeah. big. Figure out what go big yeah. means. Yeah. And <laughs> the thing about be smart is adjust as more information comes in. This is not just an unguided missile you launch and forget. This is start, you know, just define it by the population. Because I always remind people, we respond to people, not stuff. Mm. So define the population that could have been impacted. That's your big number. It won't get much bigger than that. So that defines how big big can be. And then what are the resources that you're going to need or likely need based on the type of event? And you've got a lot of historical data. So this is, this isn't precision right now. This is this very rough beer math of X amount of people divided by this means I need this much baby formula to, to this much water to this much, you know, emergency power. Um, and start moving because again, you know, the process at FEMA, by the time those 
assignments come out, you got to arrange travel, you got to get the vehicles loaded up. You know, IMATs have two hours from time of uh, boom to be going once they get the, that direction. Yep. And usually, you guys, the, the really good teams, were already packed up and waiting for somebody to say go, and you were sitting in your vehicles, and you may actually be up crept out the door, just kind of like moving in a direction if you thought it was bad. Uh, and now, as more information comes in, now you start shaping that. You start going, well, based upon the new information coming in, I'm not going to turn anything off, but I'm not going to reorder because I've probably got enough stuff going out in the first push package that's going to take care of everything. Yeah. Uh, and speed, and there's a couple of reasons why I'm so focused on speed. One is the faster we get there, the better chance we can stabilize things and reduce the overall impacts as well as the cost of that response. It may not seem intuitive, but getting in there quickly and getting the situation stabilized means we start shutting down some very expensive operations and, and, and move towards, you know, the private sector and others doing the long-term sustainment operations. Uh, but the other piece of this that I, I had a hard time getting people to understand, including emergency managers, big disasters don't occur one at a time. Mm. So the other thing was like with the national IMAT, I wanted you guys in quick, but I also wanted you out quick. And yeah. if you were staying down there, I wanted you to be ready to deploy to the next event. And in 2011, we were doing serial deployments with the national IMATs going from one big event to the other. And I think some of those teams didn't get home until after Irene. Yeah, it was brutal, but, I think, for the teams. So. But it had but to it happen. Was, but we saw this with our, uh, you know, the, the MERS detachments, the communication guys, a lot of the urban search and rescue teams is the faster we got them deployed and in there and got done and allowed them to reset. And, and I learned this from Florida. You know, our, our rescue teams deployed four times, mm. back to back. And the time interval in the 04 hurricanes was 22 days between Charlie and Francis, 11 days between Francis and Ivan, and nine days between Ivan and the last storm that year. And if you think about that, Teams that went out, did search and rescue, were deployed for maybe five to six days, got home. By the end of the year, they were barely home two or three days. And think about what it takes to refit, resupply, you know, deal with everything that happened. Uh, anybody got hurt, got to be replaced. And you're back out the door, you know, nine days after, you, and you were just back maybe two or three days before you went out again. Yep. The, uh, there was disaster in 2017 and 2018. I would get to the like I I had I had all these fake metrics of when I knew I was done with response. Uh, one of them was when they wanted to start ordering T-shirts, and everybody in the field was like, "Hey, let's get a T-shirt for the disaster." I'm like, "Time to go home. I'm not in a response anymore." Or another one would be like, "You start getting like the HR complaints," and I'm not talking about the serious stuff. There's oh, you always have to deal with that, but like I'm talking about like, "Hey, they don't they didn't define my, how long I could take a lunch." They're like, "Time to go home. Not in a response." And so, like, I kind of like the USAID model of like ten day deployments. Now, I I don't think that's a hard and fast rule. I think you can kind of play with that. But like, if you're not doing life saving, if you're doing life sustaining, you're not in response. You're in recovery, and um, that that's kind of how I look at it. I think other people might look at it differently, but well, I think this was also uh, a trap we ran into. The idea of the national IMATs going in there was not to stay down there for months at a time, but because we had hired some really high-powered and capable people. Uh, people tended wanted to keep them just for the personnel on the team. But the idea was they would go in 
and deal with that response phase while we built out a joint field office and staff that up. And you would start handing off responsibility and ultimately transition to the joint field office and federal coordinating officer uh, for whatever remained of response and recovery and reset the national IMAX. But uh, again, as we ran into is, you know, and again, you know, when you're dealing with what you had in 17 and 18, uh, one of the problems was shortages of skilled personnel that could do a lot of these things. And so, Mm. The, the national IMATs were, were basically being piecemealed and used more for fillers uh, and the holes in the org chart than they were as, you know, the teams deploying, getting in, get it stable, and get out, reset for the next event. That is, you just described my entire career. Like, um, we would get in there and, you know, my wife is going to listen to this episode and she's going to be very annoyed because she'd be like, hey, why'd you deploy for six months to that one disaster? Like, <laughs> remember when I said I was going out the door? I thought, you know, so yeah, that's it's man. We could probably have you on talk about that stuff forever because that's that's like like I said, you just described my entire career right there. Just like, hey, how do we organize capabilities and in an ICS? Don't even want to get into that right now. But uh, let, let me get back to some of these questions. Um, you you were talking earlier about knowing the right people in the room or being the right guy in the room. We kind of had a funny, fun question. This is from... Let me pull this up. This is from Nick. He goes, in terms of uh, FEMA, says, which reason is, region is the best and why is it number seven? <laughs> so did you have like a region where you were like, okay, if something happens there, I can trust them. Now that you're out of FEMA, you know, it's been forever ago. Like which regions where you're like, okay, like we have, we have the right personnel there or we have the right capabilities there. Is it four because they were blasted a lot and you were in because you're from Florida or do you have like a, another region where you're like, okay, they got it. Well, you know, some regions were stronger than others. Uh, Some had less disaster activity and and really weren't much of a, a a big concern. Um, But leadership matters. And I I did a lot and I didn't always uh, endear myself to people, but I put a lot of emphasis on the leadership. Um, when I got to FEMA, our deputy regional administrators were uh, GS-15s, and they would serve as the acting administrator uh, in between uh, administrators. A lot of these, at that time, uh, six regions were political appointees, still are. Um, and, you know, almost every other program at FEMA is ran by a senior executive service, the highest rank you can have in, in, in federal government outside of political appointees. And so we worked on, and, and Joe Nemec, who's the deputy, was you know, he's the one that got it done. But he got the positions um, from Homeland Security, and we upgraded all those positions to SESs. Mm. And we had regions that were not good. Um, yeah. <laughs> I don't think it was so much the personnel. It was, I think, uh, the lack of consistent leadership. So mm. we had some good turnarounds. And, you know, there are some regions that I don't, you know, when I was at FEMA, you know, I didn't worry about. In other regions, I found I had to engage more. Um, Interesting. And it wasn't always the regions you thought. Uh, so I won't go into the numbers because uh, there are still people there, and I respect <laughs> them. Yeah. Uh, but I will tell you, there's some there. Some of our regional administrators are heavy hitters. One of them are serving right now as the acting administrator. The other one is serving as the deputy administrator. Um, mm. And our deputies had much better depth once we got the SES upgrade. 
Uh, so they have the same, uh, you know, heft that an administrator has in the region uh, in dealing with the uh, FEMA program. So uh, just like states, some were good, some were weak, uh, some needed coaching. Uh, mm. and, and that's what I found in a lot of cases. The, you know, the joke in our business is your first big disaster is your first big disaster. It wasn't they were not you know, good people. Uh, they just hadn't been through it before. And sometimes yes. just a little bit of coaching. And then by the next time disaster happened, they're turning out to be one of the national leaders because they've got that experience. They've been through it. They know what to do and they're executing. You just named. So speaking of Todd DeVoe from earlier, uh, you just named like my number one reason why I don't trust CEM and he's a fan of CEM and he's given me a really good pitch of why CEM is important to certified emergency manager. But at the end of the day, like I want people like I trust people who are seasoned and I trust people who've been trained by the people that I trust. I don't know if that makes any sense. So like there's these two thought processes and we don't really have the time to get into it today because I want to I do want to get to the last couple questions here. But like there's like the FEMA is the IRS of disasters. We're, we're there to write a pay to write a check. I did not get into emergency management to write checks. I got in there to help people and to coordinate. And so like there's these two trains of thoughts. And what I find is once you've been out there a few times, you realize like oh, the money goes here and that's why it's important. So we got to manage all these resources versus like checking the boxes. Okay, I did my yeah. I did my classes from FEMA, my free classes. And so like, I think I can take this test and I've been to one exercise and it's like, but uh, you know, something's better than nothing. So that's why, that's why CEM is good. Todd's yeah, going to like that I, I mean, said that. But. My, my approach to that is I always tell people, if you ever have an opportunity to deploy to help out your neighbors in a disaster, go with the best training you ever have. I tell uh, governors, and I tell mayors, I said, if you ever are asked, send your folks. It is invaluable for you. It isn't just you helping your neighbors. And this was probably the, the, the best thing I got back from Sandy. I opened the doors up and sent people out that had never deployed um, mm. and were never given a chance to deploy. And you're absolutely right. We had people in our grant shop that had never been out on a disaster, went out and saw what all that grant funding was doing. And they yes. came back and they go, oh, we got to do this, we got to do that. And it was just so many different places in FEMA that programs that were running uh, things that were directly impacting our state and locals in the field who came back with a different perspective of, oh, now I understand. And yes. I won't say it made everything perfect, but I think there's a, there's a big disconnect between uh, knowing emergency management and knowing the why. And the whys aren't as easy until you've been out there and you've seen why we do what we do versus this is what we do. Yes. Uh, this is why... Oh, man. So I get a lot of flack, actually. I like, I love the people at FEMA. I know they push really hard and I, I have a lot of respect for people. Obviously, I worked at FEMA. But I do get a lot of flack at FEMA because I'm actually one of those guys who's like, eh, headquarters? Like, you're not the best. These regions, the regions who deploy all the time, the people who go out there... I, you know, I trust them. I will trust them in the field. And so, like I said, people at headquarters are like, how dare you say that? But like, uh, there was this one girl, Caitlin, and she she admits this. She said, she was actually on her show, Caitlin Von Stein. She went out to... Uh, she she did one of those things, right? Because of what you're suggesting. I think that's kind of standard now to send people out to at least one deployment. Sean Rooney, yep. the same thing from DHS. I'm going to go check the box. I'm going to go out there. And we got out there. And I hate... The way we do preliminary damage assessments, I can with as a GIS guy, I can tell you more in ten minutes than you can do with a five hundred crew in the field yeah. for thirty days, right? So 
I went out there. She got out there and she was like, hey, what are we doing? Preliminary damage assessments. She's like, great. I'm like, yeah, I just got a drone. I'm the first drone operator in FEMA. And we're going to go fly drones to get damage assessments. It's the only way to allow them to get GIS to do it. And I found more homes with a two-person crew than they did with a 33-person PDA team. And I did it a third amount of time at almost no cost. So it's just crazy. And and after that, she came on the show. She's like, I get it now. Like, yeah. we need to move, move much faster. So like, again. Yeah, I mean, headquarters, when I got there, they would send people out. I said, anybody here? Been? Oh, yeah, I go out. That turned out they're what I call disaster tourists. They yes. fly down to a joint field office. Uh, they they make the JFO stop everything to brief them. Uh, they drink coffee and they fly back to Washington. Yep. And I'm thinking, so I, a couple of times I found my disaster tourist showing up in a disaster site. I'm like, great, you you just got assigned to community relations, or you're working, <laughs> um, uh, you know, at a, at a disaster recovery center, or yeah. you're going out uh, and you just joined the plan staff. What? And I'm like. And there's, I didn't pack. I'm like, you got a credit card? There's a Walmart. Yep. Uh, get it done. So, yeah, get it done. Um, and again, what I found was interesting was people are afraid, I think, sometimes to be deployed because it's not their element. Mm. And others never could get anybody to let them go. That was yes. the other proposition. They wouldn't let them go. They were too valuable. I'm like, uh, and, and again, I would get out on some of these disasters, and, and I, I told my regional administrators, this. I said, look, if I'm coming down there, it's not because things are going well. And if I'm there and you're not, it's not a good day. That's a great point. I wish that was... I, I shouldn't say it like that. I think... I'm just going to leave it there. I think that's a great point. And uh, yes, I, I, I did know some people at headquarters who are like, I've never been deployed. I keep trying to get asked. And that... You changed one thing, though. You, you changed... I think it was you. You you said every single person in in, in FEMA is uh is deployable is an emergency manager, and uh you kind of changed the game there because again you're you're getting away from the noise of all the tribes and you're saying anybody can go. You have a day job and yep. you have a disaster job, right? Yeah. Turned out that wasn't as easy. I just made that <laughs> announcement and there and it turned out well it's in our if you notice our job postings, all state, 24 hours a day, seven days, can be deployed, everything else. Yes. It was not written in the people's position description. And if it's not in the position description, it's not enforceable. So that it took sucks. me forever to get that changed. And, but if you remember when you got hired, you had to do it. You had to, as part of the interview process, the onboarding. And this was like a go, no go. You had to sign a statement that you acknowledged that you were deployable and on call for 24 hours. And that wasn't yep. just for the national IMAX. That was for every employee coming in. And the goal here was uh, when you got like three back-to-back hurricanes, you would be able to surge your workforce and essentially implement your continuity of operation plans. What are the essential functions we got to keep running? And that frees everybody else up to deploy. But you can't deploy people unless they've had training. Mm. Uh, and they had assignments. And that's why, I, you know, before I was leaving FEMA, I made... You know, I was like, who all doesn't have an assignment? You're going into community relations. You're going in here, here. Uh, you know, so my goal was FEMA isn't for everybody. I try to be upfront with you, you know. Yeah. Um, but if you are here, these are the requirements. And people say, well, you can't make everybody. Well, I was like, well, actually, I can, but this is more important. You've got three categories. You're either deploying to the field, you're working in one of the op centers, whether it's the NRCC or one of the regional RCCs, or you're backfilling a position to free up a body to go downrange. 
But everybody has a role here. And there's a reason there's an emergency in the word FEMA. It's not the federal management agency. Yeah. Um, but that was a culture shock for some and a relief for others to be given that opportunity. Okay. Again, I got to get you back on here because I have a huge problem with the name uh, IMAT, the Incident Management Assistance Team. I'm like, am I assisting the... I don't know. I have all these problems with all the names we use, manager versus coordinator, all this stuff. So we got we got to talk about that some other time. But yeah, I didn't think about that. All the people who'd push back because it's like, it's not my job description. Talk about a lift, but you got it done. I mean, that that is standard now. Um, when I did onboarding, I worked with... I uh, There was people in HR, there was people working in EMI, there's all these different people. Every single person heard that in the room of you could be deployed and uh, part of the job. So way to get that done. Um, Okay, I'm going to go over the last couple questions here. Um, this is from Michael. Uh, what does he see as the state and local impact of future disaster declarations if FEMA disaster declaration criteria change and implemented? That's kind of a huge question. Could you take maybe one piece of that of like how the direct... Yeah, I mean, yeah. states are going to have to start budgeting for disasters. Um, yep. This has been, again, a push that states need to take more ownership of their reoccurring disasters. Because think about it. If somebody's always bailing you out, why are you going to change where and how you build? If the states are totally, in my state, Florida, is a perfect example. As long as they're totally held uh, not accountable for developing in high-risk coastal communities and not budgeting for those responses, and depending upon taxpayers in Montana to pay for that, the risk keeps growing. And we set the price of risk so low, there's no reason for states and local governments to change behavior. And in, in an acceleration of weather-related disasters uh, due to the impacts of climate that has already changed, mm. we've got to get to a better point where the federal government isn't the first payee. We need to shift more of this burden to the private sector, to insurance, and if insurance can't afford to insure it, maybe we should ask why we're building there. But we need local and state governments to take more ownership of these reoccurring disasters, which I would refer to as this checkbook disasters. Um, it would always be coming to the federal government. And the thing that people forget is, you know, FEMA only pays for uninsured losses. Yeah, so that's... response costs, debris, I get that. But think about all the government buildings, all of the nonprofit buildings, and now they've added religious facilities. The only time you, the taxpayer, pays is because somebody didn't have insurance. And that was the thing. I was like, why aren't you having insurance? Well, yeah, why are, you, why are you? So this so, goes back to this idea. We have transferred a lot of the financial risk from state and local governments where decisions are being made that grow risk to the federal taxpayer who's just on the hook. And I don't suggest we should not help states out when it's overwhelming. But I think we need to get a better balance because uh, it was never intended that the taxpayer would be the basically the primary insurer of state and local government infrastructure, much of which is built to the wrong standards and the wrong places. But there's no accountability there. So we end up seeing our disaster costs exploding, more disasters, yet state and local government largely insulated from being accountable for their decision. Okay, so I'm just going to call this out real quick because you're now the second for, former FEMA administrator, Brock was on here, who said almost the exact same thing. 
And I said the same. I said this to him. I'm going to say it to you. We all know that. Like, yeah. at, 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 like what was it? The, the National Flood Insurance Policy Act basically told states, if you don't put in your budget for disaster management, we'll, we'll bail you out. So that was num- number one. And then my other really big problem is like, I'm a huge fan of mitigation. Like, I don't want to have a disaster. I, I'd rather mitigate the disaster. But kind of the standard practice, whether in FEMA or across the board, is build back to what it was. And so in my mind, that's just like, that's, that's just as vulnerable, especially with weather events. They happen again. So like, okay, this is kind of getting to somebody else's question. So I'm going to steal it from Laura. The future of emergency management. Like how, is that what you would change? Would you change the mitigation process or would you change the way the law looks for like incentivizing states to actually take care of it themselves or what? Well, I was attempting through rule changes uh, because yeah, I was basically, I knew going back to Congress, they wouldn't touch this, was to implement a disaster deductible and have states take more ownership for the uh, first part of the disaster. Because the way it works right now, oh, once like you that. hit the magic number, we always go back to the first dollar. No insurance policy works that way. Yeah. So I'm saying, well, why don't we do this like an insurance policy where your deductible is whatever your threshold is to get declared. And anything above that, we're going to come in and do you know the seventy five twenty five, but everything below that mm. is yours, and you can buy that risk down by having unified uh, appropriate building codes, land use planning, investing your own money in mitigation, investing your own money in building emergency management, not always just doing only what the federal government provides, and then on the uh, flood insurance, I've been working on that outside of FEMA uh, with Pew Trust and others, and one of my questions is. Why are we still writing flood insurance policies for new construction in coastal high hazard zones? And yeah. again, I, we, we need the flood insurance program. We got too many homes built in flood zones that, yes, without that insurance, we, we cause huge impacts to families and businesses. But for new construction, why don't we take a different approach and go, look, if you want to build there, we're not saying no. We're just saying you're not going to get national flood insurance. Now, if you can get the private sector to insure it, Mm. Go build it. If they won't insure it, why is the taxpayer underwriting that risk? Yeah, you said, I mean, this, it's the same. This is kind of the same thought process you said when uh, write your social security number on your arm. If you want to stay, I mean, that's on you. If you want to build in a high risk area, that's, that should be on you. And I, I kind of like that thought process of returning well, people. This is to- actually this has you know support in Congress. There are now bills that are in process. Mm. that literally talk about stopping providing flood insurance in the future for new construction while we figure out how to maintain the program Mm. and price the risk uh, so that we're not subsidizing. And this is is a real tragedy, the flood insurance program. Everybody's worried about risk 2.0, that the flood insurance rates are going to go up. They never talk about the flood insurance rates that are going to go down. And here's the reality. More minorities in St. Louis pay more for flood insurance than people that live in predominantly white communities and coast areas that are having pay less than what it costs. That's nuts. And they're using those poorer communities to subsidize the higher risk communities. Uh, and this is not my opinion. These are from General Accounting Office. This is from uh, uh, reviews by inspector generals. The mm. documents are out there. But the flood insurance program, the interior parts of the country are subsidizing coastal residents. And a lot of these communities, 
it tends to be the lower income, more vulnerable communities that pay more for flood insurance to subsidize the more affluent communities on the coast. That is, um, gosh, talk about mic drop moment. Because like most of the disasters that we deal with, it's other people taking care of other people's problems that they should have mitigated. Again, like that that process of just waste, fraud, and abuse. Talk about waste, fraud, and abuse. Um, I'm going to switch it over to a kind of a lighter topic here. It's uh, the last of two topics if you still have time. I'm trying to respect your time, but it's kind of fun talking to you, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I had... So as soon as I announced that you're coming on the show, I had about... I don't know. I, I just had a ton of people reach out to me who I've known in the field who started all asking questions about Waffle House. A lot of them were jokes, to be honest. But um, <laughs> like... Um, Gosh, this is a good one. You'll like this one. So uh, here we go. This, Kevin, um, he said, is toilet paper the new Waffle House? Actually, we try to preface it by explaining what the, the, the Waffle House index. But he goes, uh, is toilet paper the new Waffle House? Should the toilet paper index replace the Waffle House index? It seems like the Waffle House index is outdated. What is the new measure? So can you talk to us? We actually love the Waffle House index. Talk about one of those data points. Talk to us about... Uh, why you would you would talk about Waffle House? Well, the Waffle House originally started out just as an observation. Uh, this goes all the way back to Hurricane Charlie. And this mm. is kind of a long-winded answer, but it, 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 it's an insight into how you look at data points to get a quick assessment. Uh, we went down range. I was down on the ground in Charlie the day after, and I stayed down there for several weeks. Um, I always believe that the leadership should be closest to the disaster with confident staff in the back making things happen. So mm. I had confident staff, so I was down in the field. Well, the days were long, like you know, and we would get up, and we had to literally stay an hour south just to find a place that had power. But getting up at 4 a.m. in the morning, rolling out the door at 5 uh, you're looking for a meal because whatever you got for breakfast may be the only meal you get all day. It's definitely going to probably be the only popular. So mm. we get on the interstate and we couldn't go north. We had to go south before we found anything open. First thing we found open was a Waffle House. Go in. Uh, instead of the black, bright plastic laminated menus, they brought us a piece of paper. And the waitress said, that's all we got. Uh, we lost all power and this is the fresh stuff we just brought in. But it was hot. Uh, mm. We got coffee, ate breakfast, and went about our day. Next morning, we get up, and we didn't have to go south because the Waffle House where we were at was open. Interesting. And as power was coming back up, they were getting open. And that, that's the only thing. Open. Went in there, same deal. Um, so we were seeing the Waffle Houses opening before anything else did. But there was something else we were doing. We had Charlie hit uh, southwest Florida, uh, Ponta Gorda, Charlotte County. And like a knife, or probably the best way to describe it, it's a 10 mile wide tornado. Because if you've ever done an overflight over a hurricane, there is no real definitive path. Hurricane Charlie, we flew that all the way to Orlando and you could see the path. It was about 10 miles wide. It was like a big tornado. Mm. And we had damages all the way up into Volusia County, Daytona Beach. And I was getting county directors screaming at me because their requests for assistance were getting turned down or weren't being answered. And I realized they didn't have visibility. I'm down in Charlotte, DeSoto, and Henry County, which are clobbered, they're flat. I mean, we've got it, we're, we're barely hanging on. And I got counties who, on any other disaster, would have gotten everything to ask for, but they just weren't the priority. And so we started doing a, a simple color code red, yellow, and green. Red, your EAC is fully activated. Yellow, partial. Green, you're closed. Search and rescue, red, we haven't done it. Yellow, we're in the middle. Green, we got it all clear. School. We did all this stuff. Right. And my, team that I was with actually popped in a slide and it was a Waffle House. 
And it was red if it was closed. It was yellow if it was open with a limited menu. And it was green if it was open at a full menu. Okay, that would have been the end of it. Mm-hmm. Except we got another hurricane. And I was really pushing this idea that we're not waiting for assessment. We're moving as soon as the winds drop down to safety on the road. I'm not waiting for clear skies. And I'm not waiting until somebody says it's bad. I just got hit by another hurricane. Let's roll. Yeah. Well, the question is, when you're rolling in, you'll start seeing damage well away from the center of impact. How do you know where to stop? And since Waffle Houses are up and down the interstate system in Florida, it, it became this shorthand. If you get there, the interchange, and the Waffle House is still open and got a full menu, keep going. You may have tr- trees down. You may have billboards down. It ain't bad yet. Mm. If you get there and they're open but have a limited menu, that's probably a big mask here. We've lost power. We've lost infrastructure. And you've been on these things. You know, that's yep. going to be your big demand for, you know, the, the points of distribution, the commodities. Mm. But you ain't there yet. Keep going. When you get to the places where the Waffle House is shut down because of the disaster, that's where it's bad. That's where you start engaging your search and rescue, debris clearance, and other teams to get into those areas. Because that's where most likely we've got the, the gravity of impact. And that's how it started. But it's one way of looking at infrastructure and getting a quick read. You know, if the Waffle House is green and open, they got power, they got water, and their refrigeration and freezer are working fine. Their employees can get the work and their customers can get there. Waffle House. So even if there's damages, that tells me a lot about the community just looking at one business. You need to own stock in Waffle House for one reason. We all know that at FEMA. And so like it was like the standard thing for us to go eat at Waffle House because we're like, we got to support the Waffle House Index. So that's awesome. But the thing about Waffle House, one, they're a privately owned company. I have no financial relationship. I know you don't. I just think it's awesome. Yeah, They, they send me Christmas presents from time to time. But um, the, the thing that is kind of also different is Waffle House is one of the few companies I ever went to that very simply their, their CEO and their president says our mission is to get open. I mean, think about how many businesses, I mean, that's a very definable mission outcome. Get open. They don't have to add qualifiers safely and everything. That's inherently built in. And I asked them why. Why the drive to get open? In, in many cases, at a financial loss. Mm. And in some cases, before the customers would even be there. And they said, we owe it to our, our employees. They call them associates. This is their job. Without us, you know, they're not getting paid. And we owe it to our customers. And their joke is, we got people that eat so regularly at Waffle House before clothes they'll start. But if you've ever been to that Waffle House and when you've been deployed, have you ever listened to the other people there? That It's one of the most interesting conversations you'll hear is people talking about what's going on in that disaster. And for a lot of people, just going into someplace like a, a, an open restaurant, in this case a Waffle House, and being able to sit there and almost like a little you know, cocoon from the disaster and now start processing is actually an important part of healing and mm. dealing with the stress of the disaster. So, you know, it, to me, it was just, it was an observation. And then I kind of met up with the company folks and, and I talked to them about their whole philosophy. And I mean, they take their CEO and leadership team out the door to mop floors and work the grill uh, if they have to get a restaurant. I mean, yeah. they, they, they focus on it. And that's why the Waffle Index is more than just a joke. It's, how the private sector, if they can get up and get running, that's one less point of distribution we have to be concerned about. And this really taught me the lesson of we, we shouldn't compete with the private sector. We should work with the private sector, just like we did with the volunteer agencies. If they can get open and do stuff, then I don't need to be there doing that. I need to be where they're not or where they're not getting open or where we have disruption. That's awesome. 
um, that's you have so many moments on here where you're talking about uh, being a change agent and co- collaborating and working with different groups instead of what happens like like you said earlier the whole tribe concept. Um, we actually did like I'm legitimate. We we did use the Waffle House Index as part of our like opening strategy. And now like to to hear like the kind of the background of why the so what. Um, that's really really cool. Um, I I always looked at it as like okay if they're open then they're starting to um, starting to move into a, a better direction. So I guess from like my nominal understanding, um, still had it. Uh, in terms of the pandemic. Um, they are actually looking at uh, toilet paper and making sure like it never happens again. That that whole issue, um, we did have somebody uh, actually going back to the Waffle House. Uh, Mike said, um, "How many Waffle Houses did you have to go to before you made that observation?" So I thought that was uh, I was kind of funny. You kind of explained it, so kind of passed. About, it was. It, I'd seen this before. I mean, it's just one of the things in Florida. If you were starting that hurricane, you just if anything's open, it's a Waffle House. But in Charlie, we actually was watching the process in real time yeah. and we were having to come up with some way of dealing with, you know, we had uh, close to 20 counties that were impacted to some degree by Charlie, nine of which had to pass it right through them. And we needed a way to both internally and externally show mm. people stuff. And the cool thing about that red, yellow, and green, even governor Bush began using it because if I had a school district that was red, he wouldn't know why it was still red and what we were doing to get the yellow because ultimately he wanted to get the green. And it was one of the few visuals in the OC that actually meant something because if people saw red up there, they knew that was the focus. And the goal was to get everything to green. The um, It was funny how in 2017, they switched over to lifelines and that was kind of the, the um, I would say it, it was like this this new idea of using the, the color-coded system for these lifelines, community lifelines. And... It goes back to what's Dr. Steven Johnson. I keep on referencing people on the show, funny enough. Um, he's like, you know, intelligence only goes back a couple of years because if you go beyond that, people have actually tried it before and it's worked. Yeah. And so, yeah. like, it, it just it just shows, like, why that's so important. Um, I mean, tell me how much power is out in a community is irrelevant. What percentage of power out is what's key. And being able to track that, and again, looking at, you know, if you've ever, you know, you have, and you may actually produce them, but most sit reps are so much junk in there, they're not useful. But quick yes. color code, if the power grid is red, I know it's bad, and I know all the things that are coming out. If it's yellow, I know we're getting power, but we're not back. If it's green, we may still have outages, but it's no longer driving the response. And those are really quick indicators when you're looking at a variety of infrastructure and data points where reading through numbers and then trying to go, okay, what's this the population and doing all this stuff? Like, I just look at it and it's, it's very quick. And I found for executive decision makers, that's a better way to present this information than to giving them, uh, you know, basically a uh, 17 page sit rep. Yeah. Well, you, have, you had the other problem too. And, on the West Coast, uh, the uh, the the popular thing is this trifold. I hate fitting. I hate templates sometimes, but uh, getting to that another time. But yeah, it's like need to know information. Need to know what, so what, validate or change the decision. So the last so what I want to talk about today is what you're doing now with one concern. Can you tell us about the so what of what concern, what it does, and or, yeah. or what you're doing? Yeah. I mean, how many times have you been out where people said, I never knew it could be this bad? Every time. And I'm like, why not? Yeah. Well, it's never happened. I'm like, well, 
you know, why can't we model it? That, the first time I really tried this was with the Cascadia subduction zone. I, I had asked the, the, the plans folks, what's the worst natural hazard we face? And after a while, they came up with that. I said, okay, let's run that as our, as our, our, our exercise. And we'll use that in the national exercise program. And then everybody started pushing back against it, that, you know, it's not realistic, it couldn't happen. I went, well, USGS is who we asked. Let's use their data and let's run this. Well, it turned out we didn't have good modeling. Even has us and others were all over the place. It turned out that Mm -hmm. uh, we probably did more to update data sets just doing that exercise. But it was a huge lift. It was like a year process just building the, the exercise scenarios to be as realistic as possible based upon the actual data that USGS had. Mm. And it was like almost like a once in a lifetime exercise. It's very hard to replicate. And I'm, I'm like, you know, that's, that's the challenge. And so when I got approached by one concern and they started talking about, you know, AI and a lot of other stuff and, and artificial intelligence gets speed around, but it's really machine learning. And it's this idea that we have a lot of data. We have more data now than we ever did. And right. if you can build pattern recognition tools, to look at all that data, you can start seeing things that you may not see until you have the disaster, and you can see that ahead of time. And so, you know, various types of tools of, you know, when we were facing Harvey, and now it's, they're talking feet of rain. We know the areas in Houston are going to flood. They flood all the time. What we don't know is what else is going to flood. Right. And why do we have to wait for the flooding occurred to see that? Why couldn't we have modeled that? Well, it's complex. It's hard. You know, I'm like, I got that, but these guys were using things like kind of this nexus between machine learning and cloud computing where you just basically, it costs a lot of money, but you can just basically dial up processors in the cloud. And essentially supercomputers pale in comparison to, you know, distributed computing power. Mm-hmm. And it's this idea of asking the question, how bad could it be? And then looking for the connections and interdependencies that you would not normally see. It's like, uh, earthquake, a lot of times I look at a hospital and it turns out a lot of the hospital newer ones are built very well for earthquakes and would basically get through it and be functional. But who looks at the water system? Who looks at the roads? Who looks at the service area that may be now cut off from that hospital? Mm-hmm. And those are the kind of things that I was really intrigued by. So what we have been working on at One Concern is how do you model the complexity of these disasters? based upon how bad situations can be and start seeing at what point certain critical infrastructures and others start failing and the dynamics tied back to people. Because I always remind people, human beings are what we respond to, not stuff. So I want to know the impact to people. Yes, infrastructure impacts will affect people, but it turns out that if you're not looking at the people themselves, you may focus in on the wrong things or you may miss things. And so looking at everything from demographic data to built infrastructure data to the science of how various hazards occur, uh, looking at high-resolution digital elevation after flooding, that really is a lot of, uh, of data points. Mm-hmm. And doing this to scale fast so we can ask these questions in real time, both and I think originally they were thinking this was going to be a great response tool. I said, well, it would be. But more importantly, it would be a great mitigation tool. Because yes. this was my first question with my light bulb and said, oh, I want to help. Can you change the underlying data set? I go, oh, yeah. I'm like, holy crap, you realize what you can do now? 
you run your base and you go, this is how bad it can be. Now I can go in there and start changing the environment and going, if I did this or did that, now what changes? Like yeah. something like changing your building codes and then rerunning the scenario and seeing what the change of the outcome mm. is a powerful tool. So it's, it, to me, it's more powerful in identifying risk, identifying what mitigation strategies would work, but understanding what could happen. So we're not waiting till it happens to go, I never knew it could be that bad. Because hopefully if we could do this in a way that is now in a way to inform local decision makers, perhaps we can start influencing the reluctance to adopt stronger building codes or redirect where and how we're building in high-risk areas. And this isn't about not building. But it's about building in ways that build resilient communities, not just future disasters. Well, you're, you just said the last question that we always ask everybody. We always ask everybody, what's the next step in emergency management? That is the next step. I, I come from a GIS background who gets pushed back a, a lot because everybody wants to do their standard maps. And I'm saying you should be using artificial intelligence. You should be using every tool you have to say, I know where what's going to happen and I can ev evaluate risk so you don't have disaster. So like that's that's like the reason why we have the, the name Disaster Tough. Because the idea of like resiliency is actually bouncing back, right? What you're talking about is you don't have to have a disaster if you fix building codes. We basically mitigated... If you look at Japan, we mitigated earthquakes. Base isolation, we figured out how to mitigate earthquakes. They had a tsunami issue. That was 2011, right? It wasn't an earthquake issue. It was a tsunami issue. So what you're talking about is the evolution of true emergency management and mitigation of impacting your environment so you can deal with that deal with uh, the you know the likely scenarios of your of your environment I mean that's that's insane and and that's why like everybody should be taking away every single person who does data management on this should be now looking at your company every single person who wants to mitigate disasters the right way they should be looking at one concern I like that's like everything I need to know about that um, so uh, Craig, thank you so much for coming back on the show, for pushing the field towards emergency managers getting deployed, for understanding like the just like working within locals, using your local experience so that that Waffle House Index, for example, all these different things. Like you, you've really drove the the field, and you're still driving it through one concern, obviously. So again, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing your advice with us. Thanks for having me. All right, everybody. Craig Fugate, the man, the myth, the legend, was on our show today. If you like this episode, you should because he gave a, a lot of really great advice about the so what's of emergency management. You got to give us that five-star rating. We always ask. Got to give us that five-star rating. Subscribe. You can learn more about Craig Fugate on our main show, our main page rather for Disaster Tough, the Disaster Tough podcast on Instagram. We also post on Facebook and LinkedIn. We'll do a link to one concern. We'll put that in the show notes. So if you're an emergency manager in the field and you're looking to mitigate, you're trying to do the next steps, uh, more than happy to, to add in their business information there so you can you can contact their company. Again, follow us. We, we do this every week. We bring on experts. We brought in one of the best, obviously, today. And we'll see you back next week. Thanks.